0: Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. Our seventh episode is from a sermon J.P. Conway preached on August 11th, 2019. The sermon was on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25, through chapter 8, verse 13. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning. It's good to see uh, smiling children after the first week of school. You haven't given up yet, right? It's good to see you. Um, After today, we will be halfway through 1 Corinthians. So nice job. We're almost there. Uh, Some may wonder, why have we chosen the longest of Paul's letters? It's a good question, but we're already halfway (laughs) in. So we're going to finish the last half of chapter 7 and the chapter 8. It's really short, uh, but that's where we're going to be today. You can turn, if you want, to page uh, 928 in your pew Bible. Or it's also on the inside uh, of your bulletin. I have every hope that Jesus returns this year. Um, there's nothing that I have planned in 2020 that I'm not willing to give up to just go straight to the new heavens and new York. Like, there's nothing that I'm like, oh, but I really need to do this next February or next July or whatever. Like, I'm ready. I love my family. I love you. I love the city of Nashville. But I'm ready. And I have every hope that Jesus returns this year. I don't expect he will, though. Um, All the things we're thinking about for next year, we're probably going to have to live through do the best we can, and all those things that you have planned. And, and that's the weird space that we live in as disciples of Jesus, ready and hopeful that Jesus will return at any point, but cognizant of the fact that it's been 2,000 years, and so we're not going like to mark May 1st on the calendar and hope for it, right? It's a weird space. And I need to say that up front, because... Some of the things Paul says in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 7 don't make sense unless we understand them. Paul believes Jesus is going to return really soon. Uh, he was wrong. Jesus himself said no one knows the hour. And Paul wasn't predicting a specific time. He just said, I think it's soon. In many ways, it was soon for Paul. He didn't live a long life. But Paul brings this type of urgency to discipleship. Put it differently, I was I was talking to someone in their eighties. This was a couple years ago, and I was like, "How you doing? How's life going?" And they just kind of chuckled and said, "I'm doing well, but you know, I'm not buying green bananas." <laughs> and it was this notion that, "Hey, I'm not making plans for five years because I'm ready at any point," and and that's. That's Paul's posture, and he invites us into this sense of urgency about what it means to live the Christian life, and yet at the same time to realize it may not happen as soon as we hope and pray, and that sets the tone for it. He's still in this whole context of disruption and how the gospel might disrupt our lives, and there are times when you're called to Christ, you need to leave what you're doing. Because you can't be a Christian and stay in that space. But there are other times you might say, Ah, because I'm a Christian, I want to leave this space. No, God calls you to stay in that space and be a believer in that space. So there's a lot of discernment required. So we'll pick it up here in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7. Starting verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. Once again, we see Paul's urgency in this. He references the present crisis. So it's not just that he expects Jesus to return. They're in a state of persecution. Life is really hard right now. And it has affected the way they're making certain choices. It reminds me... Of What one of my friends said after 9-11, he and his wife were considering having children, and he said, I just don't know that I want to bring children into this world. You know, it was a big life event that really shaped, at least for a season, how people were thinking of choices because it was so tumultuous. They're living in that type of time period where he's like, hey, this is a present crisis. I encourage you to stay as you are now. If we just take these passages out of context, Paul can seem very anti-marriage, right? Like, man, grumpy old Paul. Somebody take this out for Valentine's. I mean, he's not really writing Hallmark cards, is he? Um, never married himself. He's not anti-marriage. If we take all of his teachings as a whole, he, and obviously Scripture as a whole, presents a very high view of marriage. But Paul will not give himself... To what many of us have fallen prey to. Paul does not raise marriage up as an idol. And one of the things we talked about in recent weeks, one of the postures that some Christians have taken to various forms of the sexual revolution is to bunker down on marriage so strong that we can make marriage into an idol. Marriage is a created good, it is a gift from God, but we can't make it an idol. Paul says there are two options for us to choose. We can choose the celibate single life, or we can choose married life, and guess what? He says the single life is the preferential option. <laughs> we often have that reverse, right? At least in church culture. That the married option is the preferred option, and the single option is, and I've had friends telling this, and I remember when I was single, it's kind of like What's wrong with you if you're single? And, and that's even so harsh to say out loud. But so many of my friends have said people have approached them that way, and even this sense of this desperate notion to set you up if you're single. And the church has not always handled single folks well. And one of the things we want to say is we want to affirm what Paul's saying here: to be single is is a gift. To be called to the single life is a gift, and. Sometimes we get it backwards and we say, ah, to be married is a gift. And some have even thought to be single is a curse. And Paul says, by no means to be single is a gift. Now, sometimes in our culture, uh, to be married can be looked at as a curse. Specifically, if you get married young, like I remember I got married at 23. And so many people are like, why would you get married? Like, why would you do that to yourself? specifically in Northeastern culture where I lived at the time. Uh, Some people approach marriage as a curse. And and Scripture obviously doesn't do that. What Paul is setting up here is that this is a gift from God to lead the single life. And we don't often think of it that way, but Paul talks about it that way. Picking up and continuing in verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short... From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a lot of things in there. But one of the things Paul is saying, and he knows it because he is living the single life. He's saying, when you are single, you're not competing with these other allegiances of spouse uh, and perhaps even children. But your heart is completely devoted to the Lord, and quite honestly... Paul could not have lived the lifestyle he lived if he had been married and had children. Going from town to town and being persecuted, that's not the type of lifestyle you would want to take a spouse and kids into. Paul says this is a preferential lifestyle for me, and I really recommend it to people, or what Paul is saying here, to consider that. And so here's the space that we live in. I was trying to figure out how to wrap my mind around this. And kids, I'm going to reference a movie you probably haven't seen, but your parents will remember it. When I was in college, there was a there was I don't know, was it a romantic comedy? It was a movie called Jerry Maguire, and and Tom Cruise was in the film, and he, he was a sports agent or something. But I think he's dating. Uh, Renee Zellweger, am I getting this right? If I want to admit I've seen this, okay, i got a thumbs up. And there's this line, and it's so sappy. You know, he can't decide if he wants to date this woman. And he comes in at the very end of the film. And he looks at her, and he says, I'm, I shouldn't do Tom Cruise impersonations in public, right? But he says, uh, he says, you complete me. Like the music gets going. And I was a costume at the time. and I probably fell for it in some way, right? But uh, based on this reading of scripture, kids, do want you to hear this. That is the dumbest thing. Oh. Your spouse does not complete you. Uh, the Lord completes you. And so what this means is, If there's a Christian that that is married, they are complete in the Lord. And if there's a Christian that is single, they are complete in the Lord. And and your, your marital status is not a sign of your completion. And some of you may feel called to get married, and we completely support you. And some of you may feel called to be single. And you may say, boy, the life I feel God leading me to live is not really conducive to a spouse and children. We want you to know, we support you in that. We promise to not endlessly try to fix you up if that's what you want to do. Or to look at you as if something is, is not complete. Um, I know a number of priests and nuns in the Catholic tradition. And I'm I'm not in favor of requiring celibacy. I guess I'll go on record there. But... Uh, Oftentimes, I'm really impacted by the things they're able to do with their lives because of the complete devotion they have in that way. I don't think you should be forced on anyone. But if you choose it, we're in your corner. And we support you. Let's continue on in verse 36. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, And if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better." A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I do have the Spirit of God. Paul's getting a little defensive there at the end, right? Uh, you get the notion that people were questioning whether or not he had the Spirit based on his own marital status. One of the things we see in them is probably obvious, the way we think, but it's important to note that it is in the Bible, that when your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. That's probably something that there should be a lot of discernment. You shouldn't feel like you have to. You probably shouldn't rush into it either. But it's definitely a permissible thing if someone chooses to do that. Notice that Paul encourages us to marry fellow believers. These things are in the text as well. We're going to continue now in chapter 8. There's only 13 verses in chapter 8. And the theme of chapter 8 will be picked up in chapter 10. So we don't have to exhaust this topic. In many ways, this is two short sermons back to back. Okay. So chapter 8, I'll set it up this way. I was at a party last night. None of the folks at the party went to Ackland. And uh, you get put on display sometimes when you're a preacher at a party on a Saturday night. And uh, we are playing some type of game, and one of them teased me and said, what's the sermon for tomorrow morning? Lay it on us. And I said, you don't want to know what the sermon is tomorrow morning. And they're like, no, come on, like, tell us, what are you going to say tomorrow? And I was like, is food sacrificed to idols? There weren't any follow-up questions. And that, that killed that conversation. It's tempting for us. When we get to the food sacrifice to idols conversation, to say, what about this might be relevant? So let me set it up this way The food sacrifice to idols conversation is a now that I've been called to Jesus, this world is very complex. And when am I participating in something that is evil? And when am I worrying so much about participation in evil that I'm just driving myself crazy or living in the lack of paralysis? I'll use this illustration. Our country is reeling with gun violence. And all of us are wondering what should be done. When, by our actions, have we participated in them? What does this say about the movies we watch? Are we participating in some way in the violence if we watch violent movies? How about violent video games? If one owns a gun and is spending money towards companies that make some of these other guns that are used, am I complicit in some way? If we cast the mic around, I know there's lots of opinions and thoughts on that. I'm not giving you an answer. I'm just saying the food sacrifice to idols conversation is your paradigm to process some of those things. If you walked into ancient Corinth, the first thing you would have noticed were all the temples. You walk into Nashville, you notice the cranes, the pedal taverns, the scooters, and you're like, what are the values of this place, right? You would have walked into Corinth, you would have seen three big temples, and this set the scene for all the city. You had the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, sexuality, and fertility. You had the god of Apollo, the god of prophecy. And you had the god of Ascle- I can never say this. Asclepius. Larry is here to correct my Greek pronunciation. This was the god of healing. All these are themes, by the way, that come up in the letter. Now, I've never participated in idol worship. Um, Some of you are thinking, did we not get that answer in the interview? Why? We waited eight years for him to tell us that. But anyway, um, probably none of you had two, so it's difficult to relate to this. A temple back then combined three things that we think of in our culture. It combined, it was a church building or a worship space. It was also a restaurant. Like, all the main restaurants in Corinth were on the temple grounds. And then it was also linked to the grocery store. So when you went to the temple, the temple compound was um, a worship space, a restaurant, and a grocery store. And so as you're contemplating your involvement in those things, you may make different decisions based on whether you're worshiping, whether you're just going to the restaurant, whether you're going to the grocery store. And there were other things that happened at the temple too, which we preferred to. But at least those three things that affected the way they went about it. Also, your involvement with the temple was seen as your patriotic and civic duty. And if you stopped going to the temple, people wondered, Is he anti-Corinth? And people got really sensitive if you could go into the temple. It's kind of what we see in our culture when people respond to the national anthem in different ways, and suddenly it gets real sensitive. That's how it was if you didn't participate in the Corinthian temple. So this was a big deal for Christians that they wanted to be good neighbors, and yet they had been called to a greater kingdom. So this is the text. Now notice... The quotations, this is Paul quoting their first letter. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge, end quote. That's something they would said. But knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, and this is what they had said, an idol is nothing at all in this world, end quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one, end quote. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. This is what we think is going on. A lot of the Christians were continuing to go to the temple and participate in the temple sacrifice and in the meal that flowed from that. And then other Christians would be like, Why are you still going to the temple? And they'd be like, We know there's one God, those gods aren't real. We're just participating in the social aspect of it, not the religious aspect, okay? We know that those gods aren't real. So what harm is there in worshiping an idol when we know it's a bunch of hocus-pocus that doesn't mean anything? Now, what is their motivation for continuing to go to the temple? Most likely, those that were doing this were the elite's. Of society that had become Christian, there's probably a small percentage of the Corinthian church that were elites. If you wanted to be a part of the economic structure of Corinth, you better be at the temple. If you wanted to be in the know about the politics of Corinth, you better be at the temple. It's where all the big decisions were made, and it was where the business deals happened. And if you had a business in Corinth and suddenly you weren't going to go to the temple, it was going to greatly affect your business. To be called out of the temple was to make an enormous economic sacrifice for the gospel. This group of Christians, they wanted to keep their business, they wanted to keep their influence in society... And they said, no, no, these pagan gods aren't real. They had knowledge. They had freedom. But Paul felt like it was becoming destructive. Continuing on to verse 7 to the, the chapter. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, and no better if we do. Paul's basically saying, you're right that food's not that big of a deal, but there's something deeper. He continues, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, Eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. What Paul is saying is, there were some that were new to the Christian faith. And when they saw who they thought of as more mature Christians still going to the temple, it made them think, what is this all about? That they're still, I thought we were monotheists, and they're going to the temple and they're worshipping these gods. And it was causing them to lose faith. Um, We need to know, there's a difference between cause to stumble and offended. Paul is not talking about whether you offend. That's different parts of the scripture. Uh, Stumble is if your freedom causes someone to lose their faith. And one of the best examples I can think of is, in your Christian freedom, you may choose to drink alcohol without getting drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. In your Christian freedom, you may choose to drink alcohol without getting drunk. But if you were having a family over for dinner, and one of those individuals was a recovering alcoholic, it would be incredibly unwise to drink alcohol in front of a recovering alcoholic. Because in your freedom, you might cause them to lose sight of the way that they were trying to live. And it's a similar notion here. So Paul's going to pick up this theme again in chapters 9 and 10, but he's basically going to say... You don't need to go to the temple and participate in the temple mill. And is it going to kill your business? Maybe. Carrying the cross is really tough. But he's also going to say, you can't live your life in constant paralysis. You guys probably get emails and social media alerts all the time about endless boycotts in our society. Don't shop at this store because of this. And, and, And some of that may be good. I'm not knocking that, but like... Every consumer purchase I make, from my shoes to my minivan, I can trace that back at some point and find evil somewhere. And we're not called to live in a bubble. And so Paul is saying, if you go to the grocery store, don't worry if it was sacrificed to an idol or not. Um, Like, you can't live in paralysis. And yet, don't participate in evil. There's a lot of discernment to it. The Corinthian context was very complicated. And you all know, our world is very complicated. The gospel disrupts our lives. We're not called to escape and go live in a commune. We're called to live in this world, and yet we're called to be salt and light. And we need to pray to make wise decisions about that (coughs) each and every day. Let's stand together and see. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash ackland.org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.